Uh, I was talking to Greg outside and he said that he loves days like this. And I told him, I like the sun. You know, I pay taxes in California for sunny days. You know. But uh, if you're visiting us today, thank you for choosing our church to be the place where you can worship Jesus. And, and we pray that today, as, as you do and worship with us, that you can have a personal encounter with Jesus. Last week, we began a series that we titled CSI, Connect, Serve, and Inspire. And uh, we talked about the importance of connections. Connections are uh, the, the, the thing that God left for us to do as we're on earth in order that we experience the same way that he wants to have a relationship with us. So today, uh, we're going to explore another aspect of significance. Because we spoke about last week about the life is not about success. Life is about significance. And significance is achieved in, in, in many ways. And when we talk about significance, the best way to understand what significance is about is to take a look taking a look at the life that has been the life that has been the most significant in history. And that is the life of Jesus. So if you take your notes out or, or you uh, open your word, let's go to Mark chapter 10, verse 45. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus speaks. He says, probably one of the most important texts in the whole gospel. Because from this text, we'll extrapolate the most important essence of the gospel. Notice what it says. Mark, ch Mark, Mark chapter 10 verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And we understand that the culture tells us that life is about being successful. That the, the happiness comes about your success. But see, Jesus is saying something completely different. Jesus is saying that the meaning of life is based on the impact that we leave on others' lives. Jesus changed the culture not only of, his, of today, but also the culture of his day. Because see, in those days, the Romans were a culture that they actually didn't do a lot of the work at home. In fact, they didn't do any of the work at home. It is said that in the city of Rome, for every Roman citizen, there were three slaves. So the work that was done in the city was not really done by the citizens. They had people to do the work. In fact, the Romans were proud that the soldiers from the Roman army were Roman. But even the soldiers had servants. So when Jesus comes to the culture of that day, when the Romans were in controlling of the world, Jerusalem was no different. Because the people in Jerusalem, the Jews, had already experienced enough of the Roman culture that they accepted those practices. And service was something that was seen as tasks designed for the lower classes. In fact, the religious people, they believed that they were from a higher class. So Jesus comes to this culture and he says something very interesting. That the point of life is not to be served, but to serve. Now, if you're a, a Roman, a person who's living in Roman culture, you hear those words and you go, whoa, that's kind of weird. We have people for that. You know, like today we have an app for that. We have people for that. So Jesus came to change the culture in such a way that, that, that it shifted the minds and thinking of the people. In fact, that is the reason why a lot of people rejected Jesus. Now let's look at the next text, Matthew 20, 26. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. I'm, I'm pretty sure that Jesus, as he's giving his, his teaching, he's looking at, at the religious people. He's looking at the wealthy people. And they're like, well, I don't know if that's going to work. And he's saying, in fact, if you want to be great, you have to serve. Now, 
When, when we looked at the title of the series, I know that the first thing that came to your mind was CSI as the show, right? Crime Science Investigation. And let me tell you, we have a real life science scientist. I'm not life science. Um, we have a real crime scientist in our church. And that is Casey Hughes. And, and, if, you, and if you know her, she's our, our, our um, ministry, music ministry. I can't even speak today. What's going on with it? Our music ministry leader. And one of the things that, that we talked about this series was for her to do a presentation. Now, she is not here with us today, but she made a presentation on a video. So I want to show you something of what she does regarding evidence in crime scenes. You guys want to see it? All right. Good morning and happy Sabbath, church family. Since we will be learning about CSI over the next few weeks, connect, serve, inspire, I thought I'd share a little with you about a different sort of CSI. Crime Scene Investigation I work at a local crime lab as a criminalist, which is essentially a forensic scientist. Most of my coworkers and I have a background in either biology or chemistry. We use science to answer questions about evidence submitted to us. Detectives, prosecuting attorneys, and defense attorneys can then use our reports to help figure out what our conclusions might mean for their case. Since there are so many techniques to learn about, criminalists are usually only trained in two or three different types of testing. One type of analysis is for blood alcohol. A criminalist can take a portion of blood drawn from a person and determine how much drinking alcohol, called ethanol, is in their system. Data from a chemical instrument is collected and compared to data from known reference chemicals. Using different chemical instrumentation, criminalists in the toxicology section can determine whether a person's blood or urine contains medications, poisons, or other substances. In the controlled substances section, Solids and liquids can be analyzed for the presence of medications, poisons, or illegal drugs. Since instrumentation isn't very portable, officers can use what's called chemical screening tests to help them narrow down what chemicals an unknown solid or liquid might contain. Since these chemical tests are not very specific, the evidence will still need to be brought back to the lab for identification. In DNA analysis, samples that might contain biological fluids, such as blood, are extracted and then analyzed with a biochemical instrument. Any human DNA found in the sample can then be compared to a known DNA reference from a person or searched against a DNA database. Now before a DNA analyst can extract samples, a biology screener needs to find them. Biology screeners search evidence such as clothing for biological fluids. Screeners use lots of different ways to find potential DNA. Some ways to search for fluids on evidence are to use a stereo microscope. Another way to find evidence is to use an alternate light source. Just as with controlled substances, some biological fluids can be chemically screened. Some sources of DNA, such as from handling, wearing, and drinking, may not have visible stains. The criminalist would use their best judgment when deciding what areas of an item to collect a swab from. Hairs left out of a scene or found on clothing could also be a good source of DNA. The firearm section uses a comparison microscope to examine two cartridge cases simultaneously to help determine if they could have been fired from the same gun. Latent print analysts compare prints left at a scene to either a known set of fingerprints or to prints on a database. Since fingerprints are not always visible, different techniques such as powder dusting, chemical enhancement, and alternate light source photography can be used. Footwear and tire impressions can be compared to known shoes and tires to see if the impression could have been made by a shoe or tire with similar features. Although most of the criminalist's work is in the lab, we can be called to assist agencies in the documentation and collection of their evidence. 
Some specialties that a crime scene responder may train in include bloodstain pattern interpretation, shooting incident reconstruction, and general crime scene reconstruction. Just about everything else that is not covered in other disciplines falls under trace. Criminalists who are trace examiners use microscopes, chemical screening, chemical instruments, and comparative techniques in order to examine a variety of evidence. Trace analysts usually only specialize in a handful of subdisciplines. A partial list of evidence that a criminalist and trace might encounter includes paint, plastics, hair, fiber, glass, soil, gunshot residue, fire debris, rope, duct tape, low explosives, glitter, and play-doh. And this list is not exhaustive. One crime scene could potentially need several criminalists examining various pieces of physical evidence. Although a criminalist part can be really small in the big picture of an investigation, each part is needed to form a better idea of what might have occurred at a scene. Now, I don't know if you picked it up, but for crime scene investigation to occur, there has to be something before. A crime. A crime, a crime. And the evidence left in the crime is what leads investigators to analyze from, from body liquids to footprints to blood to all kinds of stuff to figure out how the crime was done, when the crime was done, and uh, who done it, right? So this morning, we need to first identify our crime, crime scene. And this is our crime scene. Am I connected? I don't know. There you go. This is the crime scene. This bar represents all the work that has to be done in ministry. All the work. Do you see it? Now, this is the crime. 20% of the people do all the work. Well, 80% just watch. If you ask me, that's a crime. That's a crime. Because, see, we have ministry in our church that ministers from, cra from cradle, from little kids, from birth until the last stage of life. From fun activities to spiritual activities. And everything in between. From health to food. And they, is, they are related. So we have all kinds of ministries that the church is involved with. But the crime is that only 20% of us actually do the work. Now, Jesus showed us something very interesting. And that is that... The life of Christianity is based on service. As we read before, Jesus came to serve and not to be served. So let me say something really, really weird here today. If you are not serving, you are not really a Christian. Christianity is not based on what you think, on information. Christianity is based on actions. Think about this for a second. John 3.16, you know it, right? You've seen it in stadiums and stuff. For God so loved the world, and it ended right there. I love you guys. You guys look so cute. I love you so much. No, it, the, the verse does not stop there. It keeps going that God gave. You know better grammar than I do. To give is a verb. And verbs denote actions. So because God had an experience with us, which is love, he manifested that love into action. And he gave everything that he had for us. 
Are you with me? Is the weather kind of putting you to sleep? Now, what are the evidences of this service that God wants us to experience? Let's look at the first evidence. And the first evidence is the dirty towel. The dirty towel. This scene is the last moment where Jesus is going to be with his disciples. You remember the story, you've seen the movies on Easter. Jesus is in the upper room. And in the upper room, he is about to have dinner for the last time with his disciples. These are the men that will continue the work that Jesus began. For three and a half years, Jesus has been teaching these men what to expect, what to do, how to do it. In fact, they would already been in training, going to villages, preaching the gospel by themselves, healing people by themselves, performing miracles by themselves. But now this is the time where Jesus is about to leave them and they need to be prepared. Now, looking at this scene, what could Jesus do? This is the last message for them. Could Jesus take out his computer, his projector, and give him a PowerPoint presentation of the future of the gospel? Could Jesus just tell him, guys, this is my book. And here you'll find the seven steps to be effective disciples. No. What Jesus does is that he shares with them an example. Notice what it, what, it, what it says in John 13, verse 5. It's right there in your notes. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now, for us today, this text does not mean a lot other than Jesus washed their feet. But when we think about the significance of what Jesus just did with his disciples, 2,000 years ago, it changes everything. We talked about how the Romans were not used to doing menial tasks, where the Jews were not used to either. And what happened was that when, when a father would come home from work to, to the house, the wife would come and wash his feet. Don't get ideas, guys. And... and, and, and when, when mom was about to have dinner with dad, the children would come and wash their feet. Now, this would happen for most people unless you were rich. If you were rich, you had a group of servants. And these servants will work together for everyone's feet to be clean. But most likely, those servants... We're the lowest of all the servants. So everybody comes in the room. And the first thing that the disciples were looking for was, who's the lowest? And you know that it was always Peter, James, and John. Okay, we're not going to do that, guys. So they're looking at Bartholomew, you know. Who remembers Bartholomew? No one, right? So they're looking at these guys and they're looking at each other. And Jesus knows that in their heart, they're thinking, I'm better than you. Jesus knows that in their heart, they're, they're, they're thinking, you know, there's no way I'm going to be doing that. But the towel is there. The basin of water is there. Except the servant. So Jesus with a smile looks at his disciples knowing what they're thinking and he grabs the towel quietly and he wraps it around his waist. Now he kneels in front of the first one. Apparently in the story, Peter is the first one. Peter, James, and John, right? And when Jesus kneels, Peter goes, no, 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 no. Jesus, you're not going to do that to me. He will, but you, not you. So Jesus begins to wash each one of the disciples' feet. The expectation was for someone else to do it. It didn't cross the mind of the disciples. 
I'll do it. But Jesus did something very amazing. That the one thing that they were expecting for the lowest servant to perform, the greatest human being in the universe, did it. John 13, 14 uh, says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. What is Jesus telling them? What I'm doing for you right now, I'm giving you an example that everything that I've taught you, if, if there's something that you need to learn, is to serve. Is to do something for someone else. Jesus showed his disciples, and it's a lesson for us today, that, that significance comes from serving. Significance, Christian significance comes from serving. Serving is the currency of heaven. So if you ever thought about buying your way into heaven, do it serving. It is not that salvation is by works. It is not. It is that by serving our hearts turns like the heart of God. No one who does not serve will experience the love of God in his heart. Verse 15. For I have given you an example. Are you with me? For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are you if you do them. Ninety-nine percent of our prayers are about receiving blessings. Are 99% of our actions about serving? Serving equals fulfillment. So that means that serving equals happiness. There is something more in life, in, in Christian experience, than just doing things for ourselves. I was preaching about purpose and, 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 uh, and, 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 and serving in another church where I was pastoring. And uh, this lady came to me after the message. And uh, with all the best intentions in her heart, she asked me, Pastor, but how can I know my purpose? I don't know what my purpose is. So I asked her one simple question. Have you ever served? Have you ever done something for someone else? You see, oftentimes we believe that my purpose is probably something lofty, something, something high, something that uh, it, it's an accomplishment. But that is not purpose. See, purpose comes from serving. When you do something for someone else, your life become significant and that is how you find your purpose so the only if you don't know what your purpose is you need to start serving because purpose comes from serving others so the first evidence is what the dirty towel the second evidence is the dna the dna See, all of us, we found out last week that we're different, right? Remember? Some are thinkers, some are feelers, right? Well, God made us unique, not just in the way we react to things, in the way we make decisions, but he made us unique in other ways. See, Psalm 139.13 says, For you formed me inward, my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. God made us specifically and especially designed with a set of characteristics that makes us unique. So we have to discover what is our DNA for service. 
Because see, God wants to use the things that he's already given you. See, it would be bad stewardship if God already given you a set of abilities and he doesn't want you to use that for service. And God, I think, is an awesome steward. So the things that he's already put in you and the way that he created you, that is how he wants to use you for service. So it is up to us now to discover our DNA for service. So the D in DNA stands for what do I love to do? What do I love to do? Well, it's two things. Desires and passions. Desires and passions. See, we all like different things, right? Okay, at least one person thinks that. Let's make a little, a little simple quiz here. How many of you like Italian food? Okay, paisani, nice. How many of you like Mexican food? How many of you like super spicy food? How many of you don't like spicy food at all? Okay, that's pretty, pretty even. Now, you can't raise your hand twice on that. <laughs> but see, this is what happens. The reality is all of us like food. We just like different kinds. It's kind of like music, but that's a different story. We all like things, but we not necessarily like the same things. Because the desires that God put in our heart are unique. We, we might share it with somebody else. But in my serving DNA, my desires, the things that I like to do, God put them in my heart for me to use them in service. Now, there's a difference between desires and passions. Desires are things that you're like, I like that. I like that. But see, like Italian food, if you eat it all the time, or Mexican food, if you eat it all the time, you get bored of it. Right? I remember when, when this restaurant that has like a line of food, and you go by and you say, I want that, I want this, I want that, and then they give you a bowl or a burrito. You know what I'm talking about? Chipotle. Yeah, chipotle. Right? <laughs> So when it first came out, I, I really liked it. I really liked it. Because, you know, I could choose and, and the type of, of spiciness and all that stuff. I liked it. Now I hate it. Because we ate it so much. I would ask the kids, what do you guys want to eat? Chipotle. 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 If I ask Giovanni, what do you want to eat? Chipotle. You know? So now I just hate it. I just don't like it anymore. Because I got fed of it. So, so food is like that, right? So desires are things like that, that you like, that you enjoy, but you can't do them all the time. Now, your passions, on the other hand, is the things that you can live without doing. Uh, uh, sisters, do you have a husband that likes to watch sports? Okay, that was a nervous laugh, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You have one of those? Now that football season started... It's like your husband is lost for 13 weeks or 18 weeks, whatever the season is long. You know, passions. Passions are the things that you cannot live without. That regardless of the season, regardless of the time, regardless of your energy, you can always do some of it. That's your passion. Now you can think about it. You can think about it. Maybe you're a passionless person, but those don't insist. Maybe your passion is not being passionate. Now in Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for what? For his good pleasure. So God made you to be like him. And those desires and passions that he installed in you, he gave them to you so that you can experience service and love others 
the way he loves you. Now, if you, you, you've heard about a recycling program in the church. Well, that was the passion of one of our young adults. When Clara saw the need that we needed to recycle all this stuff that, that we as a church use, that's in her heart. In fact, she's studying uh, ecology because that is her passion. So see, if you see that something that, you, that is your passion, we're not doing it at church, guess what? We could start it because it is your passion. And no service is better than the one that is born out of passion. Now, the N on our DNA answers to the question, answers to the question, what I can do. And the N stands for natural gifts, abilities, and talents. Natural gifts, abilities, and talents. Now, there's a difference among all of these. Natural gifts. These are the things that you were born with the ability to do. Because our biological DNA is so strong, some of us have received abilities for different things. Some of you have perfect pitch. You can hear a note and know, oh, that's a middle C. You know, I hear a note and I'm like, sounds just like the other. You know? Some of you have the ability to see something and recreated it with art. Or you imagine something in a picture and you take the picture and you say, oh, that's how I imagined it. Because you have that artistic perspective. My art only comes in the form of Instagram. And nobody likes it. But see, your natural abilities are those things that you didn't have to take classes or go to school. You're just good at it. Now, gifts. That's a different story. Because the gifts are given by God. Just like the natural abilities. But the gifts are given by God to be used to build the kingdom. And the Bible offers lists of different gifts. And even among us, in this same church community, we're given different kinds of gifts. Some of us pray well for others and with others. Some of us listen well. Some of us are able to teach. So there's all kinds of gifts that God can give you. But see, you can only receive the gifts when you're willing to receive the Holy Spirit. Then are the abilities. Abilities are something that you learn how to do. And when you learn, you became good at it. Do you know how to knit? Nobody knits? Crochet? Oh, yeah, I crochet. No, I don't. My wife does. And uh, no, she, she uh, didn't know how to do that. She didn't. Somebody taught her. I don't even know who taught her. But once she learned, she hasn't stopped. She's made scarves and, and blankets and things for the kitchen and for the bathroom. And we go places. We go to a local store. And once you pass by the wool stuff, Oh, they don't sell that over there. So, because that ability that she learned has become one of her passions. She wasn't born with that ability. Somebody had to teach her. She had to learn. But it has become one of her abilities. And she shared that stuff that she's made with people. Now, talents are a different story. Talents are things that you had to learn how to do, but then you were above and beyond your teachers. 
For example, if you learn how to play the piano, I remember taking piano lessons, but it, the example is not about my talent. Um, and uh, there's some of you who have taken piano lessons. And uh, you stopped taking piano lessons, but you kept playing the piano. And you developed an ability that went beyond what your piano teacher taught you. And the only reason why that happened was because you have the talent. So whatever things you've learned and you became really good at it beyond what you were taught is because you have the talent to do it. So in our DNA for service, our natural abilities, our gifts, abilities learned, and our talents set us up to do things that only you can do because you have that set. And 1 Corinthians 14, 12 says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. You see, you could have abilities and natural abilities, but once you allow the gifts of the Spirit to work in you, is because you want to use those abilities to build the kingdom. And God allows you to receive gifts that go above and beyond what you ever expected to do. And when God uses those abilities, you become an influence in, other, in others. And the church is built. Verse 5, 1 Corinthians 12 says, And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. So you can serve in any way possible. And, and, and I love it because see, here in our church, we have people that you could say, okay, they don't have, they, you don't require a special skill. But see, this is one of the most important jobs. And most of the most important jobs in the church, you don't see people doing it from the front. You see, there's a team of people that come on Thursday to fold the bulletins that you're using today. And I've seen some of you that take those notes after having written on them, you take them home and you share them with other people. So that person that came on Thursday morning and folded the bulletin for you, guess what? It's building the kingdom. Because those bulletins will be used as instruments for someone else to reach the gospel, to be reached by the gospel. You are sitting on a pew that has no dust, no stains. Because someone came during the week to make sure that you could experience the word of God in a comfortable setting. Last week, once I prayed and we closed, you went down the aisle and there were tables for you. There were plates for you. Better yet, there was food for you. And it was Italian food for you. Why? Because silently, people during the week prepared the food for you to be able to sit around a table and talk about the kingdom. You shared your stories. You got to know each other. And that is building the kingdom because you were making connections. So all these jobs that happen with unsung heroes in our church are because someone decided to use their abilities, their gifts, for the kingdom. And God takes those hearts those desires, and makes them better so that people can be blessed. So the A in DNA stands for things that I have learned to do. And it's two things. The A is for accomplishments and failures. Have you ever failed at doing something? Have you tried it again? Did you do it better? Maybe the third time or fourth or the fifth. But even failures become the fundament of accomplishments. 
God uses the things that we've learned in life as tools for us to build the kingdom. All the times that we fail at trying to do something, God uses them. Because they become part of our experience, part of our testimony, part of our sharing with others, this has been my life. And the accumulation of those things become accomplishments. You see, oftentimes we have this miscued interpretation of what accomplishment is. And we think that an accomplishment is a diploma or a trophy that is sitting on a shelf. But it's not. Our accomplishment is what happens when we become of influence to someone else. See, I have a, a, in my mom's house, I have a certificate, a diploma of computer information systems. Let me tell you how many times I've used it in the last 20 years. Whatever I learned 20 years in computers, we don't even do it anymore. When I graduated from that program, we were doing DOS. Windows 95 came after. So some of you are like, what is that? So whatever I learned then, it's useless to me now. So that accomplishment expired a long time ago. So if I depend only on the things that I have to show, they die quickly. But the influence on people, the experiences shared with other people, the testimonies with other people, those live through eternity. So my failures have become accomplishments. And so will yours when you use them for the kingdom. When you use them for someone else's experience. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. By the way, let me warn you. This text is one of the texts that has been misused so many times. But let me explain this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those, and this is what we forget. For those who are called according to his or hers purpose. So if you allow your life experience, your accomplishments and your failures to be used for God and for the kingdom, then that becomes your purpose. And God will use those bad things that happen in your life, those failures, to become accomplishments. It's not like all the bad things happen, oh, God will do something good about it. Not necessarily. It has to be according to his purpose. And his purpose for us is to become servants just like he was. So first evidence, what was it? Dirty towel. What's the second evidence? DNA. Ready for the third? Like, yeah. The third evidence is the fingerprints. The fingerprints. Let me ask you a question. Where are your time, your treasures, and your talents been invested? Where is your time, your talents, and your treasure being invested? Because that is the place where your fingerprints will be. There's two kinds of fingerprints. Fingerprints that are temporary. And these finger, fingerprints, temporary fingerprints, are the ones that I leave my mark on things that are selfish. Just for me. 
things that I do for myself and uh, they don't last very long. Do you remember the excitement when you got your last cell phone? All you've been thinking about since a couple of weeks ago is getting the new one. Because the excitement of the, of the last one is already passed. That's old news. Because things that are driven out of selfishness are only temporary. But the second kind of fingerprints are eternal. And these are left. These fingerprints are left. When my mark is left on someone else's life. Because that will go through eternity. 1 Corinthians 15.58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Whatever we, go, we do for God, and, and let me tell you, I, I got people who, who have worked in the church for decades, and oftentimes they come to me with this question. How could I ever see the work of my labor? And let me tell you, when you work for God, you won't see it automatically. It will take years. In fact, some of it, you won't see it until we get to eternity. You see, the beautiful thing about heaven is that the work we do in living our mark in other people's lives is that we, we don't even know most of the time that we're actually doing it. We don't even know. You know, the other day I was at a store and someone shook my hand and said, are you Pastor Pakini? And I said, yes. And she said, you know, I listened to one of your sermons on the radio 15 years ago. And that brought me back to church. I didn't even know her. I didn't even know that people actually listened to that radio station when my sermons were broadcasted. But someone listened and at that particular moment, God spoke to that person and she felt the need to go back to her church. God works like that. And when we leave or mark on people for the kingdom, the fingerprints are eternal. They will last forever. You know, it's going to be amazing that when we get to heaven, you see, the, the writings of Elijah White tell us that in heaven, everyone there will wear a crown. You want to wear a crown? Right? And it says that in every crown, there's going to be stars. But this is the interesting thing. She says that every star is a person that we made a difference from on earth. So she says, in heaven, there's not going to be anyone without a crown and no crowns without stars. Think about this for a second. You have no idea how many stars are going to be in your crown. That's a surprise. Because when we get to heaven, we're going to see people and meet people that will say, you know, it's because of you. That thing you did, that thing you shared, the meal you prepared, the bulletin you folded, the day you cleaned the church. Remember that work be? It's because of that example that I decided to accept Jesus as my Savior. And Romans 14, 12 says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And the account, see, God is going to ask us a couple of things when, when we're judged. The first one is, what did you do with my son? What did you do, what did you do with what you learned about my son? And the second is, who did you share my son with? 
John Newton is known because he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. But he also wrote something else. And what he wrote is the description of the spirit of the angels in heaven. And he wrote, I'm, I'm going to read the whole thing for you, but you have the, the closing there. If two angels were to receive at the same moment a commission from God, one to go down to earth and rule the greatest empire on earth, and another one to go down to earth and to sweep the poorest village on earth. It would be a matter of entire difference to each which service fell to his lot. The, po the post of ruler or the post of a scavenger. For the joy of the angels lies only in obedience to God's will. So it doesn't matter. What is the job that God has equipped you with? With your DNA. It doesn't matter if you are good with words or with doing things in secret. It doesn't matter because God can use all that to build His kingdom. And God will use all that for you to get a life of significance. To live a life that matters. To live a life that makes a difference in the lives of others. But the way we understand the work that God has done for us is reflected in the way that we serve others. So how much has God done for you that He demonstrated His love and passion for you dying on the cross to bear the sins that we are guilty of and to give us another opportunity. The best response to that love is but only to love Him back. And the best way to love Jesus back is by doing the things that He did. And the greatest example is that He made us to serve. And if it is time that you become part of the 20. Maybe God today is telling you. The days as an expectator are over. It is time for you. To move into action. God has given you abilities. God has given you passions, desires. And all he, all, today he's giving you a call. To become his hands, his feet, his voice.